I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And And this this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. Coming to you live. Toronto. Ever heard of it? We'll be there July 27th. Chicago, September 21st. Minneapolis on September 22nd. Nashville on October 11th, Atlanta on October 12th, Washington, D.C. will be back November 3rd, Philadelphia, we're back on November 4th, and San Francisco, we will be there November 15th. We also have a surprise city that we're doing on the 14th, and we don't know what it is yet, but stay tuned. It's a surprise to you and it's a surprise to me. If you live in a city, you might be surprised. <laughs> I'm so excited to see you guys. I can't wait. Live shows have been so fun. I can't wait to like live show to more people. And I will say heads up specifically DC, just because that's the only place we've already been. I think DC sold out in like two days last time. Philly we went to too. Yeah, but Philly didn't sell out in two days. Okay. So I was just saying like DC, they're hot with it. They're clicking fast. DC, you guys are piping hot. Philly sold out. Chicago's also sold out before. So I'm just saying if you guys live in places that we're going, other people know too. Honestly, Chicago, if the show sells out, I'll uninvite my family so that there are more tickets. Thank you. Claire. Yes. If you were to write a memoir about your week, what would you call last week's chapter? I'm on a budget. I'm doing it. I'm on a budget, baby. How does it feel? It feels shocking because me and Ashley just did our business expenses for the first time this year. We were supposed to do them every month, but somehow we just never got around to it. I will say the months, they do go by. It just keeps being the next month. And then you go, well, what are we going to do at the beginning of the month? We have to wait till next month. But more importantly, I was looking at my credit card bill and I was just like, oh my God, the boomers are right. I'm spending a lot of money on coffee and on things like, I don't even know what, you know, famously New York, you leave the house, you're spending a thousand dollars a day. So I've been on a budget. This is day three. And by budget, I mean, I'm just like trying not to spend recklessly and I'm trying to eat at home. And it's like kind of crazy how much money just gets spent. <laughs> the problem is in New York, you're constantly next to something that you could spend money on. The lie that we're told is that groceries are less expensive because maybe that's true once you've been accumulating things for years, like a capsule closet. <laughs> Every recipe requires you to have olive oil. I'm like, well, that's 30 bucks. I can get a lot of meals for less than 30 bucks. I think you have to build upon yourself. So I'm working on it. We're going for it. It's amazing what things just like pop up. Like I had a call with my tax guy yesterday. Oh my God, that's another week. For the Patreon, I'm going to get into my enemy, the tax man, who like failed to tell me that I'd be penalized if I didn't pay my taxes on time. He was like, oh yeah, you're good. And then later he was like, whoa, whoa, I didn't, no, you weren't good. And I was like, I feel like you should have said that to me. Anyway, I had to pay the government $61. That just pops out of nowhere. Do you know what I mean? And then I had drinks with friends and that's $35. And now I'm like, okay, well, that was a $100 day where I did almost nothing. Yeesh. So I'm just saying it's been eye opening. And today, listen, we're not at the end of the day yet, but I could have a $0 day because the bus was free because it was broken. So actually, I'm kind of happy that my taxes are going to war and not infrastructure because it means free buses. (laughs) Sometimes the systems that break down are bus payment systems and you kind of get a freebie. You go, that's my 275 back. Thank you, Uncle Sam. I welcome you to join me. I'm vlogging every day on TikTok because they'll bully me into smithereens. Ashley. Yes, Claire. If you're a celebrity and you wrote a memoir, what would this week's chapter be called? This week's chapter would be called It's Summertime, Baby, Rain or Shine. God, no, it's not. It's frigid outside. I got into the summertime mentality that one and a half days that it was warm and I won't be brought down. I was out all weekend. I've been like trying to make plans. So I moved to an apartment that's a little bit further from the train. And I feel like me and Bug have really found a great rhythm with each other. And I spent, I would say, the first many months of this year, like really protecting my peace. (laughs) 
Beautiful. I haven't been dating. I like honestly haven't been working that hard at making plans because I get sometimes stressed out. There's prospect of having to decide things. Like I'm good at like texting people being like, what are you doing Friday? But if they're like, I don't know, what do you want to do? I'm not good at being like, how about this bar at this time? So then I just don't text people and I haven't been dating because it's too annoying. And then I'm like, all right, you got to shake things up, you dumb bitch. And I feel like those warm days jolted me. And I've just been out and about and running around. And I'm like, oh, my God, it's fun to do stuff. I like it. Anyway, should we get into this week's memoirist? I think we should. Tell me everything. You may be saying, Minka Kelly, what do you have to say? But you'd be wrong. She has more to say than you. She has more to say than anyone I've ever heard in my life. Someone actually said they're like, what could Minka Kelly have to tell us? And I'm like, I knew for a while that this was going to be a doozy because Ashley C. Ford, who's actually a memoirist, had a really good memoir. And I remember six months or a year ago, she posted on her Instagram that she got an advanced copy of this book and it was really good. And I was like, damn, if she thinks it's good. It's good. I like had been preparing myself mentally because of that. <laughs> Can I say, this is going to go on our list of ones to actually read. Up front, I'd like to tell you that. We're going to tell you everything that happens in it in our particular style. But I really think that this is one that if you are curious about it, it's a do's. Minka Kelly, she's telling us everything. So the prologue does the typical like, Here's a fucked up story from the middle of my life and how did we get here? We'll fact track and find out. Yeah. So the story that she opens with is the first time she ever performed at a peep show. How she found out about the peep show, her boyfriend kind of tricked her into coming to this sex shop one time and made her watch while he watched these women and then deciding to go her first night on stage and like really learning how to just separate herself from her body because she knew she had to make enough money to move out of her boyfriend's house. I think normally these chapters do serve their purpose. You open Minka Kelly's book thinking like, what does Minka Kelly have to say? Like, I do think this is going to be a good book. And the prologue gives you whiplash. You're just like, this is not what I saw coming. How did her life end up here? And then how did her life end up as we know it? How did someone who became famous seven years after this, what happened to get us here? And how did this turn into Friday Night Lights a few years later? So the first chapter, again, starts not at the beginning, but when she's seven years old and this vivid memory she has of going with her mom to the strip club. Her mom was a stripper and she was really excited to show her a new routine she'd come up with. And even though she had like a vague understanding of what her mom did there, she had never really seen her perform before. But she says her mom was this larger than life, over the top, charismatic, creative woman. And she'd come up with this idea and she couldn't wait for her daughter to see and so the show itself is her mom dresses up like a bag lady and barges into the strip club from the front door, takes sips of drinks off of people's trays, throws things on the ground, is yelling. Everyone thinks the police is about to get called. And then she like struts up to the stage and starts dancing and slowly layer by layer takes all of her clothes off and reveals like a gorgeous woman. And that's when someone comes in. It's like, OK, Minka, like time is over. But Minka has this moment of being so in awe of her mom and the way that the whole room went ballistic. And at this age, she really sees her mom as this like incredible hero. But you're also like, I don't know. Even the other strippers are like, should your seven-year-old daughter be here? Is this a great place for her to be falling asleep at night? Yeah. So most of the time, she's not at the strip club with her mom. Her mom will just like drop her off at acquaintances and friends' houses for the night and come pick her up in the morning. But every now and then she'll bring her to the strip club. And this night specifically, she was like, I want you to come see my new show that I'm doing, my new act. And she's so proud of her mom. She's like, you know, a lot of these women, they, they were great dancers and they got up there and just danced to a song. But my mom, she like did a show and she would choreograph for some of the other women. And she was like so creative with it. And she's very impressed. To my eyes, she was unique, creative, gorgeous. I adored her. 
But meanwhile, at home, we lived in the storage room of an apartment complex where we'd once had our own unit, a cut-rate offer bestowed upon us by the landlady when mom ran out of money to pay rent. So they're living in a storage unit, and she, at this time, has not put together how her mom is bringing home like hundreds of dollars a night, but they cannot make rent. All she knows is that sometimes her mom will have an especially great night, and those are the nights that her mom will kind of wake her up at three in the morning and take her to the grocery store, and they'll just go crazy on treats. Yeah, she recalls a time back in our little storage space. I searched for the makings of a snack, stepped around the mattress to the mini fridge, trying to maneuver around her while mom touched up her makeup. Next to her on the counter sat a glass mirror with skinny rows of white powder. What's that? I pointed at the traces, knowing I was putting her on the spot. Just powder for my face. From the time she was young, she was an observant child. I mean, before this, she tells a story about waking up on a stranger's couch, going to find her mom, and her mom is like passed out unable to wake up next to a man who she slept with the night before who then brings her to school. Like she's going to school with strangers that her mom is sleeping with. And she says, it was on me to manage her moods and make sure I didn't upset her. If she was stressed out or like today, exhausted from too much partying, she could become unpredictable. I needed to be careful. Almost anything could set her off. This chapter is really interesting because it starts at this moment where her mom is on stage to thunderous applause. And then she's talking about what a lovable and exciting woman she is. And then you get to this point where she's like, actually, she had two sides. She had hyper excited and ready to party or tuned out and bleak. And then the second half of this chapter really brings you to the bleak side. The landlady that owned the apartment complex where they were allowed to sleep in the storage space had a son about Minka's age. And sometimes Minka would go up there because after the storage space, at one point, they moved into the garage where there's no bathroom. So they're allowed to use the landlady's bathroom. And she says she would go up there and sometimes the landlady would make her food and give her Oreos. And she was so jealous. Often I thought I had the best mom in the world. Other times, though, I wanted something more normal, whatever that meant. Josh was a year younger and we weren't really friends. Sometimes he came around to play, but I had plenty of friends at school. I didn't need another friend. I needed a full-time mom who trimmed the crust off my sandwiches and didn't sleep through the best part of the day. So almost every single day, it seems, Minka would wake up and for the first several hours of the day, she would just kind of have to entertain herself or knock on Norma's door to see if there was any food anywhere. And then eventually her mom would wake up and then they would spend some time together. And then her mom would go to the strip club and just like leave her with someone else. Yeah. So now we get into how her parents met. My parents met in the fall of 1979 at Record Plant Recording Studios on Sycamore in LA. Her dad was a guitarist. I don't even know what her mom was doing there. She moved to LA kind of hoping to become a model, actress, anything. Very Vanderpump rulesy. Yeah, her mom had been a Vegas showgirl and then she moved to Los Angeles to try to make it in showbiz. And I think was seeing one of the musicians and met the dad in the hallway. He threw a peanut at her and they started dating. She got pregnant and then he had gotten the opportunity to join Aerosmith as the backup guitarist on tour. And so she was like, well, I don't think I want another abortion. She'd had three. And he was like, I'm in Aerosmith now. And her mom, Minka's grandmother said, listen, it's just you and me. Keep this kid. Move in with me. We'll live in my house and we'll raise this baby together. You won't be alone. And maybe that would have been great, except for, unfortunately, a few months into the pregnancy, her grandmother dies of an aneurysm. So now she's completely on her own. Rick, her father, is on tour. Throughout my childhood, my mother showed me pictures of her mother and cried. Sometimes she'd call out for her mother, I need you so badly, mommy. Something in her shattered with her mother's death. Sometimes I'd see glimpses of the bright-eyed, spunky young woman she used to be and wonder where she'd gone. I never found a sufficient answer. So while her mom is pregnant, she meets a man named David, and David takes over as her father for most of her childhood. And her mom and David had a volatile relationship. They would live with him. Things would be good. He always loved Minka when she was young. 
But the relationship with the mom was pretty crazy. So they would move out. They would move in with her mom's friends. They really bounced around, it seems like, every few weeks. And she says, regardless of the state of the relationship, David treated me as if I were his daughter and loved me adoringly. At one point, when she's three years old, Aerosmith is in town in L.A. And she meets her father. And he kind of takes an interest in the child. And I think they even try to get back together. Yeah. So they get back together for a little bit. And he becomes her father. To hear Rick tell it, he fell in love with mom at that time and really tried to make a relationship work. So he got clean and they moved to New York because he was still working in music and that's where his connections were and where his roots were. He had moved from France to New York when he was younger. So he moves the mom and Minka to New York with him. And there, the mom and Rick both relapse. Their relationship gets horrible. He thinks that maybe moving back to L.A. will like help ground them a little bit, but it just makes things worse and they break up and he's like, all right, I got to go. If I'm going to like get myself sober and healthy and like become a person, I can't be a part of this. And it is really devastating because I don't actually know what the right answer was because he does get sober and he does create a life for himself. And I do think that maybe there was a part of him that wanted to be in Minka's life. I don't know if there was a way for him to do that while remaining in the mom's life. I think there was. I think he called and said, listen, send her out here once a summer and I'll get to know her. And her mom said, no. I think there's ways to fly out to LA and be like, I'm going to see her every three months. I'm coming for a week. He only would call randomly once a year. You could call every week. You could send child support for starters. Yeah, he should have done that. But it seems like he got his shit together. And at some point he could have put in more effort gradually. If you've been following along, you know about my recent development as a nails girl. It all started one day when I looked down at my hands and I thought, wow, if there was nail polish on these babies, I would look a lot more put together, even wearing just a regular schmegular outfit. And so I started getting my nails done kind of all the time, and it was a lot to keep up. There's a lot of time that goes into it. But then I found out about the Olive and June Manny system. They have everything you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. You can customize it with your choice of six polishes. And this polish does not chip. It lasts seven days or more. And that is coming from me, someone who has to stick my hands in my dog's mouth fairly often because she is a street vacuum. When you break it down, it comes out to $2 a manicure. I love being able to do my nails at home because I don't have to really commit to one color. You can just kind of strip that off and redo it as often as you want. I love every Friday morning to sit down and watch Grey's Anatomy from the night before, do my nails, and really just like revel in the fun shades that they have to choose from. Getting a salon at a manicure is a nice experience, but I feel like even though it seems quick, you really end up losing an entire morning to getting there, waiting for your time to sit down. You have to wait for your nails to dry. It is a whole to-do, and being able to do it at home, it frees up my day. And I cannot tell you how many compliments I've been getting on my nails lately. Every TikTok, every time I go out in public, people say, oh my God, look at those nails. And I say, oh, thank you. I did it myself. Visit oliveandjune.com slash worm for 20% off your first Manny system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E.com slash W-O-R-M for 20% off your first Manny system. So she tells a story of one time almost drowning at their apartment complex because there's a pool at the apartment complex and everyone's having a party. She's like always just a kid surrounded by adults. And they're all drunk and partying. And she's just like floating on a mattress in the middle of the pool, chilling. And then everyone goes inside. She falls asleep. She wakes up just floating in the pool and tries to get out of the pool and ends up falling off the mattress. And her mom happens to look out the window and see the mattress flipped and like comes down and saves her just in time. But like 
She could have very easily drowned that day. And her mom tells it as a story of her incredible maternal instinct knowing to look out and see a flipped mattress and not a story of a daughter alone in a pool. It's crazy that her mom looks at that story as an example of her incredible maternal instinct. And she's like, I ran down and I saved her and I didn't even think a second thing. And I'm like, I mean, yeah, I think if I saw a stranger's child about to die in a pool, I think without a second thought, I would jump in and try and help. And of course, they're in and out of the house with David. As far as I was concerned, I had my dad and David. As complicated as David was, he was there for us. Plus, I was offended that Rick thought he could just call whenever he felt like after leaving us. And she talks about how hard it was to piece together parts of her childhood because she's blocked so much of it out. And she says she remembers the trauma. I have no doubt that there were times when my mother and I wrapped ourselves in joy and love, that I giggled with Rick and delighted in some small pleasure he showed me, that there were times when my adoration of David filled me with security and peace. But like those missing puzzle pieces, I can't fully see those moments. So she says the story comes together with jump cuts and disrupted chronology. And she tells this next story about another time that they left David. For her sake, I wanted her to stay away from David. They only brought out the worst in each other. Still, I liked having him around. It was nice to have a father. And this is the moment when I think they're like kind of co-parenting her in a way and something gets lost in communication and she is left at school. I have to say, I don't think something got lost in communication. Well, the mom forgot her, but claims that something got lost in communication. Yeah. So she's at school. Of course, at some point, the teacher is like, I just can't sit here with you anymore, Minka. And this is really Minka's like deepest insecurity is this fear of being a burden on people because her entire childhood, she was hoisted on every adult around her. She says that her mother was always looking for ways to like askew the burden of having to take care of Minka. So she's at school. Her mom never comes to pick her up. And then finally two police come and they take her to Red Lobster and they take her to get ice cream. And Minka's crying and she feels so ashamed. And finally her mom comes to pick her up and she knows she's going to be in trouble. And so it's just story after story like this of times she was forgotten. She felt like a burden that the people her mother gave her to, which I think was even more painful, then said, we can't take you anymore. Like she was very acutely aware that she was always an interloper. And she really internalized every time someone said, we just can't take care of her anymore as her being the problem and David being the reliable one. David was also an abusive drug dealer and he was the stable one. So at one point, her mom and David aren't together. She's living with her mom. They're in the garage. (laughs) And her mom comes home so excited and says, they've picked me. They've chosen me. Her mom was this gorgeous five foot 11, beautiful woman who had wanted to be a model and an actress. It hadn't worked out, but she finally got chosen to be like the main girl in this traveling lingerie show for the lingerie company. And so she goes, I'm going to the Philippines for six weeks. I'll be right back. You're staying with my friend. So she stays with this woman, Lynette, that she had never met before. Claudia, who they stayed with often, was also in the lingerie show. So she just gets dropped off at this woman's house in the San Fernando Valley. She has to switch schools. They're not nicer at this new school. Luckily, Lynette is so kind and like cuts the crusts off her sandwiches. She buys her a pair of Nikes because she knows that'll really help her sit in. And so she's staying with Lynette and she says one day she comes home a little bit early and she hears what she knows is sex, even though she doesn't really understand what sex is. But she knows she's hearing something that she shouldn't hear. So she leaves and she pretends to come back later. And she goes, I was pretty smart for a fourth grader. Either that or a nine-year-olds are smarter than we give them credit for. Either way, I figured it out. Lynette didn't go to a regular job for one reason. Her work came to her while Amy and I were at school. So her mom would write her letters, call her every now and then. I wanted to believe her that she'd be back soon, that we'd move into a more normal life together. But she'd already been gone longer than she said. I wanted it to be me and her against the world again, to be a pair. The sting of betrayal blinded me. I couldn't picture our reunion. So she's staying with Lynette for more than six weeks at this point. She's staying for months. And every few weekends, she'll go and stay with David. She says, the minute I opened my eyes the next morning, I knew I had to get to work. It was my job to clean up after them. David liked it neat at all times. If he woke up before I'd finished putting the house back together, there'd be trouble. Everything had to be immaculate. 
She talks about learning to sweep up the rug because she couldn't use the vacuum because if she vacuumed and woke him up, he would be furious. And then she starts getting into the physical abuse that David did to her. I believe David genuinely loved me, but that's because I knew how to behave. I knew not to talk back, to do as I told, whether I liked it or not, to keep the house pristine, to have manners, and to not speak when the adults were speaking. I respected him out of fear. I'd learned these behaviors fast. She talks about David's new girlfriend, Charmaine, who she walks in on him physically assaulting her and has these regrets of not stopping him. And I'm just like, you were a kid. What could you have done? And she sort of takes it as this moment to realize a hierarchy in a house and like kind of just protecting yourself. Because in the next house that she moves into, there are two sisters. And one of them just constantly beats the shit out of her. And the other sister just kind of has to sit and watch. And she's like, what was that sister going to do? Get their ass kicked? You have to protect yourself first. So she just stays at the string of houses. She keeps getting passed from one to the other. And she says that even to this day, an older woman will stop her in the street in LA and go, oh my God, Minka, like, it's so good to see you. I'm so happy for you. Don't you remember you stayed with me for a few weeks? And she's like, it's crazy that I stayed with so many people that I don't even remember them at this point. And I like lived with them for sometimes weeks or months on end. She also explains at this point that she did have family. Her mom had a sister, but she tells the story about the time her mom and her went to go stay with Colleen, the sister in Oregon. And because she had not been raised with like proper manners, Colleen was really awful to her. Like she tried to serve herself peas with her personal spoon instead of the serving spoon. And as a punishment, Colleen made her finish the entire bowl of peas. Even after everyone went to bed, she wasn't allowed to sleep until she finished those peas. And they never went back to see her. I just like can't imagine knowing that you have a blood relative out there to take it out on a six-year-old. What is wrong with you, Colleen? And she talks about this feeling every time she would have to move houses, just this feeling that she was the burden and the shame that someone was just like passing her along because they didn't want to deal with her anymore. I wasn't good enough or important enough or special enough for them to want to pay attention to. This was a whole new feeling. There was something wrong with me. So finally, her mom comes back after, I think, about a year. I later learned that during that time, she drove a car across the border for David transporting drugs. She got caught and went to jail for a short period of time, but she never told me. Someone else years later filled me in. I learned more about my mother through strangers than I did from her. I'd forced myself to stop needing her, waiting for her, expecting her, because it was just too painful. So her mom finally comes back after over a year, picks her up, and they move in with the mother's friend, Claudia, and they stay there for a few weeks. And I guess eventually her mom tries to overdose and Claudia has to take her to the hospital and she spends 72 hours there. And when she comes back, she has a talking to her and is like, you can't do this. Like you have a kid. You can't leave your kid behind. Like your life is worth living. And her mom, Maureen, promises to get it together and says, like, I'll be better. I'll help around the house. And Claudia's like, I can't pick up after you and your kid. Like you have to contribute in some ways. But by the end of the week, her mom is back in a depressive episode. She's still doing drugs and she's just laying in bed all day, eating junk food and not contributing. And so Claudia feels forced to kick them out again. I tried to make myself useful, tidying up the magazines in the waiting area. All my life, I've been learning how to try to make myself useful. So she is just banging on the door being like, Claudia, I'm sorry, I'll be better. Not the mom. Minka. Minka is a child saying like, Aunt Claudia, I'm sorry if I upset you. And the way she internalizes all of this is just so devastating because you can just feel it to this day, the intensive therapy that she's in. I'm like, God, the layers here, I don't even know how you peel through it. So they have nowhere to go after Claudia kicks them out. So they finally drive to Albuquerque, New Mexico. Minka's dreading it. She's like, I don't want to be here. I'm going to stay in LA. But then they get there and it turns out David's parents have this giant compound 
where they just welcome anybody who at all is related or adjacent to their family and their children is allowed to come and live in one of the houses that the grandfather built on this compound. That And it's like this beautiful extended family. And it's the first time in her life she like really is loved and being watched from all angles. So David's parents fully accept her as their granddaughter. And then there are other women, like another woman who has a child with David, who's, I guess, Minka's like pseudo half brother in a way. There are just like a lot of people and kids and things around. And then at the end of the summer, the mom is like, do you want to stay in Albuquerque? And she's like, fuck, yes, I do. That's the plan. So she gets to stay there and she's so happy and she finally has cousins that are her age and she goes to church every week and her grandma like teaches her to make tamales and they're all Mexican and she just like adopts the culture and she becomes like an adopted part of that heritage. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, her first time at school, some girls follow her home and they're like, what's your name? And she says her name is Minka Gonzalez because that's David's last name and she's like, I know if they think I'm not Mexican, they'll kill me. (laughs) So she just like learns to fit in and joins the family. And she feels really happy here for the first time. But of course, it doesn't last long. And it is like a tough area. It's not an affluent area. It's like a dangerous area. I mean, there's a lot of fighting at school. There's a ton of gangs. She like wears a blue handkerchief because she thinks all the other girls are. She thinks it's the style. She doesn't know it's gang relevant. (laughs) And so she has to learn to fight. And her cousin Yasmin is like, no, you have to learn to defend yourself because I can't keep defending you. And this really turns Minka. And she goes, I went from learning how to just get by and try to be as small and tiny as possible to becoming a tough girl. Yeah. And she puts up this tough facade. She's like, I have to seem tough in order for people to not fuck with me. She still ends up fighting every now and then. Spring has sprung, baby. This is arguably the second sexiest season of the year. But if you want to make it number one, Dipsy is here to help. Explore the sensual side of this season renewal with Dipsy's sexy audio stories. You can indulge in your blooming desires, newfound passions, and the thrill of taking risks. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, sexy audio stories designed by women for women. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters, discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. I will be honest with you. When we first started using Dipsy, I was more interested in the erotic stories to read. I'm a, I'm a reader, okay? This is a book podcast. I like to read. But the more and more that I have explored Dipsy and their hundreds of stories, the new stories added every single week, I have really found my footing with these audio stories. Let Dipsy be your go-to place to spice up your me time, explore your fantasies, relax, and unwind, or heat things up with a partner. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash worm. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash worm. Dipseastories.com slash worm. So her and her mom move into a one-bedroom apartment on the compound but it's more separate. Her mom and David are not together at all, but they are part of this extended family. And so he's very much in their lives. And she's so confused by her relationship to him because sometimes he is so loving and then sometimes he's so awful and abusive. One day I was trying on mom's old stripper costumes she'd given me, seeing how I was starting to fill them out when David spotted me. We were living with him then and he suggested we take some photos. Why not? Then he posed me in provocative ways. I grew uncomfortable when he asked me to bend over in one of her skimpy outfits. A little more, he said, urging me to raise my behind for the camera. And so she feels like, what the fuck is going on? But then meanwhile, for her 15th birthday, he bought her a horse. The horse, of course, ends up getting stolen and it doesn't like work out. 
But like, I think it's very confusing because he's constantly showing her kindness. And I think even though he's so abusive, he has this air of control that to a child, to her as a kid, feels like responsibility. Like when he's abusive, it's done in this way of there's a cause and effect, like you messed up. And so now I'm going to hit you as opposed to her mom who feels hysterical and out of control. And I think she looks at David as the responsible one because he has his anger in check, even though you don't have your anger in check when you're like hitting a kid. Yeah, there is something about him that she just always associated with stability. Honestly, I think it might have had to do with the fact that he like was in the same place every time they went back to him. Well, I also think it has to do with the fact that he would take care of her even when her parents weren't together. The idea that his relationship to her was separate from that of her mom Mm-hmm. must have felt very gratifying to be like, okay, somebody does care about me and I'm not just like this favor that someone's doing for my mom. He's there when he doesn't have to be, which is so much more than anybody else. She's witnessed David be horribly violent to the woman he's dating, including her mom. But to her, he's never been like viciously violent with her until this one day. So every morning, Minka would steal her mom's car. She would drive for her and her friend to school because it was such a dangerous area that they knew if they walked all the way to school, they'd get beat up. They had to walk in pairs in order to not get beat up. So she would steal her mom's car in the morning to go pick up her friend and then bring the car back to the driveway. And then her and her friend could walk together. And that way, no one was ever walking alone. But one day her mom wakes up early and sees that her car is gone and calls David over to be like, Minka stole my car. Honestly, I think she would steal it for like 10 minutes a day. Yeah. And David just like beats the living shit out of Minka. It's horrifying. And then her mom is cleaning her up after being like, I'm so sorry, my baby. I didn't know he would do that. And she has this anger bubbling inside of her because she's like, of course you did. You put me in this position. The only person I've ever like trusted just almost killed me. And the only person I've ever loved told him to. And so then she goes to school and just the first girl she finds, she just starts wailing on. And then she gets kicked out of school. The result of those two beatings, the one David gave me and the one I gave that girl, meant I had to start a new school. So what? And then at this new school, she meets her twin flame best friend. To this point, my life had been about surviving, just making it from one day to the next, trying to figure out how to protect myself and if anyone had my back. Thankfully, that was about to change. Having one person who loved me unconditionally, who accepted me with all my quirks, and who wanted me to be the best version of myself was nothing short of transformational. I don't remember how Angel and I first met, but I know I saw her at school and I studied her for weeks. And so she becomes friends with this girl, Angel, who, even though her parents are probably like struggling and getting a divorce, it is a safe environment where her mom checks in on her every night and like asks how she's doing and cares about her grades. And to Minka, that is a safety she has never known. And her and Angel become best friends. Angel, her family is all kickboxers. And so she brings Minka into the dojo. Minka starts kickboxing for the first time in her life. And she finds so much like therapeutic relief in the athleticism and being able to fight and find strength in her body. And just relationship with Angel and this hobby that she finally got to have is a real outlet for her. And I think it's the first time in her life that she has something that she does because she loves it and not just because she has to. Of course, it also makes her a great fighter. So then one day at school when this girl like makes her fight her, Minka wins three times in a row. The girl keeps being like, fight me again. And she just keeps beating the shit at this girl, Davina. And this time, it didn't really come back to bite her. But what happens is, as a result of that fight, Angel and I became the anti-bullies at school. Girls came to us to defend them from real bullies. It wasn't what I intended that day I put up my hair to fight, but after that, I was able to let down the tough girl act. Turns out I was tough. I didn't need to act it anymore. I could now enjoy myself and have fun. And of course, her grades start slipping, but she finally has friends in a place. And it's the first time in her life since I think she was seven years old that at school she has a crew and she has friends and she's safe from a constant onslaught of bullying. 
Yeah, she says that as much as she'd always wanted to learn and like wanted to make school a priority, it was just too hard to care about school because everyone around her would be like, school is for dorks. It's not like she could bring home an A-plus report card and her parents would be proud of her. They didn't give a shit. So she's like, for survival, I just need to like be cool at school. She has this memory of going home one day, a warm fall afternoon, late summer, the pavement hump beneath our sneakers. Usually when she came home from school, mom was just getting up for the day, sleep still in her eyes, hair a mess, but not today. And today, her and all her friends are in the backyard. They had a hose that they had turned the entire yard into this mud pit. And they were all in their G-string bikinis having like a mud fight. And she's like, Minka, Angel, put on bikinis, come have fun with us. And they go and they run in the mud and they have such a great time. And her mom is so loving and obsessed with her. And she goes, she knew she wasn't the best mother on the planet and tried to make up for it with an overflow of attention. My baby, my precious baby, she kept saying over and over, hugging me close and kissing me all over. I ate it up. And then she says years later, it turns out that her mom had been on ecstasy. Even so, the memory remains one of the sweetest moments of my adolescence with her. So then she starts dating. She recognizes from day one her dating patterns were just like set up to be bad. I didn't know it at the time, but this was the start of my need to use the attention and affection of boys and men to confirm my worth. And she talks a lot about how she learned this from her mom. Like her mom had such a sense that her only way through life was to use her looks and her sexuality to find a man who could pay for stuff and protect her. And that that was her only way out. And she was like, it was just really handed down to me. And despite how much Minka explicitly would say, oh, I want to make every decision the opposite of my mom. She talks about how hard it is to not fall into those patterns when it's what's been modeled for you. One day a girl walks up to her and is like, hey, that guy that you've been seeing is my boyfriend. And she's like, "Okay, you know what? That's cool that she was so tough about it. She says, I wasn't even mad. I was in awe. I love nothing more than a beautiful girl who could kick your ass. And just like, that's you, bitch. You're beautiful and you kick ass constantly. You just beat up like 100 girls. So she's driving around one day with Angel and they meet a man named Rudy who's 22. She's 16 and he gives her a lot of attention and they exchange numbers. And right at the gate, Angel's like, I don't think this is a good idea. I think he's really old and he freaks me out. And Minka's like, you're just jealous. He likes me better than you. And of course, this begins a horrible relationship. A horrible couple of years that ultimately ruin her relationship with Angel. Of course, over time, this new relationship pushed Angel out of the picture. Part of it was that Rudy didn't want me hanging around her. He was very controlling and wanted me available to him at all times. He'd get mad if he knew I'd spend time with her and give me a hard time. I had made my choice. I was going to align myself with the guy. My best friend be damned. It saddened me to see the joy Angel and I once shared dissipate. But that was how the world worked, wasn't it? Mom had always prized her boyfriends over her friends, even over me. And besides, by trading Angel in for Rudy, I got a whole family out of the deal. So Rudy lived with his younger brother and dad in this gross, dirty shack. But she was like, I could go and hang out with Angel and her mom for a weekend, but you can't just move in permanently. But it was like, with a boyfriend, I could be there every day. And you're allowed when you're a girlfriend. Then she ends up officially moving in with him. So one day at school, a girl whose dad works for the DA comes up to her and he's like, I'm not allowed to do this, but your dad is about to get in huge trouble. Like they know he's dealing. So she tells her mom and she's like, hey, I don't know really what you guys are doing, but I think David's about to be in huge trouble. And her mom acts like it's no big deal. But the next day she comes home and her mom is packing everything and says, we're moving to Boston. And she knows she's 16 at this point. And she says, if I go with them, they're not going to re-enroll me in high school. Like, we'll just be on the run. We'll keep bouncing around. They're not really looking out for me. They just don't know what to do with me. And she doesn't want to go to Boston. Her family's in Albuquerque. She's finally fit in after years of running. So she goes to her boyfriend's house and hides. And her boyfriend's dad ends up meeting with her mom and being like, just sign over custody to me. She'll live here. 
And so she moves in with her boyfriend, her boyfriend's brother and her boyfriend's dad and kind of just becomes the maid because she wants to not feel like a burden. The fact that I was jumping from the fire into the frying pan never occurred to me. Rudy, meanwhile, was sulking. He was not at all pleased about this new arrangement. It's one thing to have a teenage girlfriend, but another thing altogether to have her move in completely into your life. I didn't see it at the time. I was too awash in relief and the fact that Tomas had let me stay in the safe harbor. I'd got what I asked for, but no idea what it meant. Driving to school the day after that, I was forced to pass our old house because there was no other way to get to campus. Each time I'd avert my eyes and try not to think, but the words kept haunting me. They left me. So her and Rudy's relationship becomes even more toxic and abusive. He's very emotionally and sexually manipulative. He cuts her off from all her friends. The one female friend she's allowed to have, he's always trying to get her to have a threesome. They're always hooking up when she's in the house. She's cleaning up after everybody. He starts forcing her to take nude photos and then make sex tapes. He, of course, takes her to that peep show. And she is just miserable cleaning, but she doesn't know where else to go. And she just wants to get through high school and then go to college. And even the dad is like, listen, you're too good for my son. You need to get out of here. And he goes, here's what I'll offer you. If you can save up for first and last month's rent, I will be the co-signer on your apartment. I will help you move out of here. And that's when she's like, all right, I have to fucking get out of here. I have to make some money. So she goes back to the peep show that Rudy had taken her to. And she's like, can I work here? And they offer her a spot. She starts working at the peep show in order to save up enough money to sign for an apartment with Tomas's help. And when she gets her first apartment by herself, Rudy can't believe it because she had just graduated high school and wanted to go to community college. And he's like, no, I'm so fucking sick of having to deal with you going to high school. You're not going to keep going to school. You had to move out if you want to do that. And so she's like, great, I got an apartment. I'm going to go to community college and I don't want to be with you anymore. And he cannot believe it. But he kind of just lets her go. It seems like he's like, all right, bye. I can find somebody younger anyway. And at this point, she's really on her own. Her mom and David are Lord knows where. She had lost everything for her boyfriend. This is how it worked. Women sacrificed everything, their children, their friends to keep their boyfriend. I did the same to Angel. And so she's alone, but she finally gets this apartment. And then she goes and gets a job at a cell phone company doing customer service. And she can rent furniture. And she is so fucking happy for the first time in her life. This was the first time in my life I realized I knew how to make a home for myself and that I was not a burden to anybody. Nobody gave me this apartment. No man helped me get it. Other than Tomas telling a little white lie, I'd built this all by myself. And then she gets a call from Rick, her biological father, and he wants to come see her because he has money to give her because one of her grandparents had passed away and left her a little bit of money. And on her deathbed, her grandmother had said to Rick, her biological father, make it right with that girl. Go get her. You're her father. So he comes to spend a weekend with her and they do just kind of click. They don't deal with any of the problems of the fact that he abandoned her for 18 years. But they like have a really nice weekend. He introduces her to all kinds of music and they like fall into a flow and then he gives her $4,000 and she uses it to buy a car. So she's got her car, her apartment. She's living her little life with her customer service gig and she's just so happy. And she decides to go out to LA to visit Rick for the first time. And she goes out there and she has a real sense of, oh, my life back home is too small for me. She does have this moment, though, where they're going to Rick's favorite restaurant, and she can tell that he's embarrassed by her. She does her makeup very Albuquerque-ishly. She likes to have, like, crimped, very gelled big hair. She likes to do lip liner with, like, foundation lipstick. It's not an L.A. look, and he hates how much time it takes her to get ready. And she can tell that he's, like, embarrassed of how she presents herself. And so they're at this restaurant, and she gets a salad, and she's like, what is this? Can I just have iceberg and ranch? And they're like, we don't have that. And she goes, well, could I have spaghetti? And they're like, we don't have that. And he looks at her with mortification and she just says, listen, I said calmly squaring my shoulders. If you'd been in my life for the last 18 years, I'd be the girl you want me to be. Just give me a minute, okay? 
A complete transformation of acceptance and humility came over him in that moment. Jesus, you got it, Mink. I'm sorry. To this day, he loves to tell that story. I think it was the moment I earned his respect. Unfortunately, it was also the moment that reinforced the lesson I'd long known. To earn love, I needed to be a certain way. Who I was simply wasn't enough. It was incumbent on me to make sure no man was ever ashamed of me. I had to be to his liking. So she's back in Albuquerque and she gets pulled over for speeding and she is beating herself up for it. She's like, I can't believe I was so stupid. I do not have enough money to pay this ticket. And then when they run her license, they realize there is a warrant out for her arrest. And she has no idea what this is for. Apparently, one of the fights she'd been in at school, one of the girls had pressed charges. And because she had moved from her parents' house to Tomas and Rudy's house, she just never got the summons. And so she had been avoiding charges. Because it was a Friday night, they had to put her in jail for the weekend. And the officer brought her to juvie because he was like, trust me, I'm actually doing a nice thing for you. And she's like, this actually is putting me in jail for the weekend is not that nice to me, but it's fine. And her friend comes to bail her out. She has a lawyer that she knows through Rudy's schemes. And she ends up being able to have a lawyer represent her in court, which most of the women there did not have. And they all end up getting the book thrown at them. Minka gets off with two years community service, which is a lot for an infraction she didn't know existed. Also, just to get up there and be like, she needs to be put in jail. She's a danger to our community. People don't go to school because of her. At this point, she was 18 years old, working a full-time job, supporting herself. Like, who does that help to throw her in jail? That literally only ruins the rest of her life and herself. And like, no high school student is more safe because somebody who graduated high school is locked up. I mean, and her lawyer gets up there and is like, I don't know, people at that school push each other around all the time. She's made a life for herself. Why would you put her in jail? And the judge is like, okay, she'll just do community service. It's a lot of community service. So after this, she gets her shit together. She decides she wants to leave and she moves in with Rick and they have a deal that she will live with him and his new wife, Robin, for one month while she gets her act together, finds a new job and then finds her own apartment in L.A. And she's like, looking back, that's not a lot of time for an 18 year old with nothing to their name to figure out their life. Yeah, especially in a city that's like way, way, way more expensive than the city they're coming from. So she goes and she takes herself day one up to AT&T and thinks she's going to get the same job she had in Albuquerque. But unfortunately, it's like a different type of job. And she's doing cold calls and she actually hates it. And she's making less money. Everything is more expensive. In addition, she has to do all this community service at an AIDS hospital. And then in addition to that, she has to get a second job working at Guess in order to like amend the money she's making at AT AT&T. So she's working from 5 a.m. to 1 p.m., from 2 to 5, and then from 6 to 1 a.m., And she's getting sick. She's not saving up enough. And she's like constantly getting cold and having bronchitis. And after four months of living with her dad, her dad takes her aside and goes, listen, this isn't working. You have to move out right now. Yeah. He's like, you said one month and it's been four. So you got to skedaddle. And she ends up becoming best friends with her manager at Guess. And her manager is like, listen, my building has a bunch of studios. You can probably get one and you can be full time at Guess so you can quit your other job and we'll just figure it out. And somehow she's able to look at this and not be mad at her dad. I would be furious. I'd be like, if you weren't there for 18 fucking years, I think you could take four months. She says, as it turned out, though, Rick was right. I did thank him later. By laying down the law, he got me to move on and I needed that. Living near Marie opened up one of the best seasons of my life. We had so much fun together, going to the movies, dancing, boys, cooking. She taught me so much. Rick, in asking me to move, had also taught me, though his way was less compassionate, a more tough love approach. Marie's care for me was always gentle. Marie is just her friend from Guess. <laughs> yeah. I, later in the book, she talks about her current relationship with her father and she's like, we've had to kind of figure out his tough love approach because it's too tough sometimes. <laughs> so she's living with Marie, working at Guess. 
having the time of her life. I think they're just being broken LA and partying. And she's with her mom in San Diego and her mom's friend, Kim, who was also a stripper with Marine, but struck gold. Kim started dating a guy when she worked at the strip club and the guy was like, your body is so hot. I'm going to make it a doll. And then that doll became a prototype for real dolls. Which was like the first and preeminent sex doll company in the world. So then she is now so rich. The missus of a sex doll fortune. And she's just like, Minka, you're so beautiful. Let me pay for your rent for a year so you can try and be a model. And Minka's like, that's okay. I don't really want to do that. (laughs) So Minka does get signed to a model agent. A woman she meets is like, no, you should be a model though. So she starts pursuing modeling kind of on the side. And this woman is like, while you pursue modeling, I also manage a plastic surgeon's office. And so if you work here, you'll have more flexible hours for the jobs I send you out on. And she loves it there. She's working at this plastic surgeon's office doing the phones. And when there are no phone calls, she's allowed to just like go in the room and watch surgeries, which sounds psychotically unsanitary. sometimes they like let her help out. They're like, yeah, grab a scalpel, dig in. No, not dig in, but she's like allowed to like help them organize stuff during the surgery. I would not love to know this, to be honest. And she becomes obsessed with it. I do think this would be like hugely illegal now. I wonder if like restrictions were loosey-goosey back then. I just think like police aren't in the room with you. I think like who would know if she hadn't written this book? Do you ever wish you could snap your fingers and have all of your recipe searching, grocery shopping, and meal planning done for you? Because that is basically Hungry Root. You'll never think about what's for dinner or breakfast or lunch again. Hungry Root is the easiest way to get fresh, high-quality food delivered to your door. They've got healthy groceries and simple recipes all in one place. What you do is you take a fun, short quiz, and Hungry Root will get to know you, your goals, and how you like to eat, what flavors you like, what kitchen appliances you have, They'll keep your needs top of mind and start building your cart. They'll recommend groceries based on your tastes. You can take their suggestions or choose anything you want. They've got fresh produce, high quality meat and seafood, pantry staples, healthy snacks and sweets, and so much more. I recently have decided to explore pescatarianism. It's sometimes hard to stick to, but when I can set those preferences with Hungry Root, I can make sure that nothing out of the blue is going to come in and get me off my game. I get the most delicious recipes, the most delicious ingredients delivered right to my door. I made salmon last week. Can you believe it? Me making salmon? It was so good. I put garlic on it and lemon. Hungry Root is a dream come true. Everything Hungry Root offers follows a simple standard. It's got to taste good, be quick to make, and contain whole trusted ingredients. I don't know what gets better than that. Right now, Hungry Root is offering Celebrity Memoir Book Club listeners 30% off your first delivery and free veggies for life. Go to HungryRoot.com slash worm to get 30% off your first delivery and get your free veggies. That's HungryRoot.com slash worm. Don't forget to use our link so they know what we sent you. So she's working at the plastic surgeon's office. She loves it. She loves watching surgery. And Tina, her modeling agent slash boss, is like, okay, so here's my surgery plan for you. You get free plastic surgeries because you work here. She wanted her to get veneers, liposuction, and fresh boobs. And then she's like, and then I can send you out modeling. And Minka's like, okay, I don't really want to do it, but okay. And Tina's like, you got to do it. That's the only way you stand a chance. And so she goes home and talks to Marie. And she's like, hey, Marie, do you mind taking care of me? I like don't think I'll be able to shower or drive after I get all this work done. And her friend goes, you have the best boobs of anybody I've ever seen. Do not fucking let them do that to you. And she's like, yeah, good point. So she goes back and says, Tina, I don't want to get work done. And then Tina goes, well, you'll never be a Playboy centerfold then. And she's like, that's okay. I don't think I like ever wanted to be. And then the next day, she's fired from the plastic surgeon's office. 
But again, she goes, this rejection was actually a redirection that helped me grow. Very uh, turn the page of her. Anyway, she has found her thirst for blood. And so she's like, (laughs) she loves surgery. (laughs) She loves surgery. And she's like that job, those surgical nurses, I could do that. So she finds a program and it's one year. You do six months of learning and then six months of hands-on training where then you are qualified to be a scrub nurse, which is the person who sanitizes everything, hands you all the tools. And she writes to Kim and goes, listen, I didn't take you up on your modeling offer, but would you be willing to pay my rent while I go to the school because I got all these grants because I have no money, but the only thing that's not covered is my living expenses. Would you cover my living expenses for one year so I can like change my life and go to school? And Kim's like, I wish you would understand how beautiful you are, sweetheart, but fine, I'll let you become a doctor. (laughs) (laughs) She loves scrub nurse school. She's having the time of her life, walking around with a backpack full of books and reading the books. She gets an award for perfect attendance, which means a lot to her because growing up, she loved school and it was like a safe place for her in elementary school and middle school. But her mom always brought her late and she was always ashamed of her tardies. And she says, going back to school as an adult taught me something about myself that was utterly and completely life changing. I could set my mind to a task and accomplish it. Not only accomplish it, but excel at it. Until that experience, I never knew. She says she's so much more proud of herself for finishing nursing school than she is for any of her acting stuff. She's like, my acting career could come and go, but nobody can ever take from me my diploma. And it is like incredible that she was able to turn her life around like that. And I think it's hard for her because she says when she was 18, living in that apartment with her cell phone job, Being like, man, I'm 18 years old and I was able to figure out how to get us an apartment in a month. Why couldn't my mom get us out of the storage unit? But I think this is a huge step for her and she's very proud of herself. And that's what's important is building self-esteem by accomplishing things. So she meets a new boyfriend. She calls him Sean in this book. But at the beginning of the book, there's like a little note that names have been changed. And she meets him at the suite for the Lakers. She doesn't bring it up again, but she kind of just like, I went into a Lakers suite one day and we made eyes and it was on. And we were like little kids. We just had so much fun running to Ralph's and everything was a game. We were playing and we were laughing and we were joking and we were so in love. And very quickly, he bought a house in the hills and we picked it out together. Okay, sweet at the Lakers. I went ding. And then I was like, bought a house in the hills. Ding. She's 24 at this point. I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? What do you mean? These little things I was like, what do you mean he bought a house? You're 24. He's a rich man that you've met in this suite because girls get invited to suites if they can't pay for the ticket to the suite. Boys have to buy. Anyway, so she's working as a full-time nurse. And then one day a woman approaches her and is like, do you ever model? And she's like, I'll pursue modeling again, but I'm not getting work done. Her first meeting in this modeling office, elite models. Top dogs. Top dogs. They say, all right, we'd love to sign you, but you minus 15 pounds. And she walks out and then they chase her out and they're like, okay, we'd love to sign you. Well, not them. Somebody else is like, I'll take their runoff. And she goes, I love your face. And she gets signed up for just like above the shoulder modeling, which is hair stuff and makeup ads. I will say she has beautiful hair and a beautiful fucking face. And so then her mom is like on the road. She gets a call from her mom. Her mom needs somewhere to live. And she's like, listen, I'm cleaning my shit up. I'm going to get a job. I just need somewhere to crash for a little bit until I get my feet on the road. And she goes, okay, fine. You can live with me. And then her friend Marie from Guess had gone through a bad breakup and needed somewhere to live. She's like, well, you can live with me too. So now it's the four of them living at Sean's house that he owns with Minka. Minka, who like scraped together enough money to get a studio apartment and now is a scrub nurse chipped in for this, what must be a at least three bedroom house. Okay. So I realized later it was more than three bedrooms and she's like, but we had so much fun for that month. It was one big party. Everybody got along. Sean loved my mom. My mom loved Sean and Marie. We all had so much fun. We were hanging out. And I was like, that feels to me like close quarters to be with somebody's like kind of crazy mom. But I guess they had a good time. And then of course, Marie moved out after one month. 
Maureen, who was Minka's mom, was like, hey, Marie, should we be roommates? And Marie's like, no. <laughs> I'm 26. I don't want to be roommates with like somebody's struggling mom. <laughs> who like has literally never been able to make rent. It's been like 25 years that we know of. So then things get dicey and she can tell that her mom is not going to leave. And she's very protective of Sean. And she's like, listen, I don't know how to handle this. She's going to ask for more and I have to get her out. And somebody gives her the advice to be like, when she asks you, say, we need to think about it. Be calm. Take a day and say no, but be firm with your boundaries. So they say that she has to move out and her mom like freaks out. And they all meet at a restaurant and her mom goes, listen, I'll move out, but I need a little help to get on my feet. I need $5,000. And she's like, well, of course, if anyone's going to give her $5,000, it's going to be Sean. But I don't want Sean to have to give her $5,000. He goes, well, think about it. And Minka freaks out and is like, absolutely not. You can't use my boyfriend. Every time I have a good life, you come in and ruin everything. And then they leave her at the restaurant. And Sean's like, are you sure? Your mom drove with us. And she's like, leave her behind. And so at 1 a.m. that morning, her mom finally shows up and leaves. And it's heart-wrenching. But she's like, that's it. I had my boundary. I had a good life. I couldn't let my mom come in and take it from me. And she and her mom have a huge falling out at this break. Her mom, as she's driving away, says, you were never my daughter. And at this point, she's like using a lot of Oxycontin, which is what prompts Minka to be like, you have to get out of here. You're just back in your old habits of doing drugs all day, sleeping all day. Like it's clearly not getting better and I can't be the benefactor any longer. So they don't speak for a little bit. So she's been modeling and she's been doing like a tiny bit of acting here and there. She's been in a couple of music videos and commercials. So she decides to like dig a little deeper and enroll in an acting class to try and do some more acting. And there she is broken down immediately. They play this game. If you've ever done an acting class, you'll know it where it's like, you're smiling, I'm smiling. You're waving, I'm waving. And then you get into like, you're angry or whatever. And so she's playing and the teacher is like, what is wrong with you? What are you doing? Why are you being so manipulative? And she's like, what am I doing? I don't know. I'm just fucking standing here playing the game. And she goes, why are you talking like a little girl? You're using that small voice and being all coy. What's going on? And she gives me like, use your real adult voice. There's a woman in there. Why are you hiding yourself? And then finally she goes, were you abused as a child? And Minka like breaks down and she leaves class and she runs to her car and she calls her dad and she's hysterically crying. He thinks she's been in a car accident and she's like, you don't understand. I've finally been seen. As opposed to being turned off by acting, for the first time she feels like, oh my God, somebody knew there was more to me than what I was putting out there. And also I think she has this moment of being like, and who am I putting out there? I didn't know I used a baby voice. But that was her coping mechanism. That was the way she got through is whenever somebody was threatening to her, she acted smaller and tiny and childlike and innocent and hoping that they would just protect her instead. And this moment of being seen for who she truly is by somebody else, it gets her addicted to acting. She like loves this teacher. She starts taking every single class they have to offer, eating up every lesson they have to offer. She like throws herself into the craft. Eventually, at one point, her boyfriend is like, do you want to just like work on acting full time and not be a scrub nurse anymore? Just like give it a go for a little bit. And she's like, how dare you? I love paying my portion of the mortgage. And I'm like, again, what could your portion of the mortgage be? And she's like, okay, so I'll work part-time in the mornings. That way I can go on auditions at night. And she's like, very quickly, things started happening. She was in What I Like About You, which is one of our favorite shows. It is, honestly, one of the most underrated sitcoms that's ever existed. She does a Clean and Clear commercial, an Old Navy commercial. She was in music videos. She says, none of these things were particularly noteworthy, but I was making steady progress. I beg to fucking differ. Puddle of mud. I'm sorry, but if I was in a couple of episodes of a TV show, like my first year of acting... I'd be like, oh, I'm making it big. That feels like huge. So her boyfriend loves the movie Friday Night Lights and her agent calls her. She doesn't really mention how she got an agent and a manager, but at some point she accumulated the team. She's like, oh, my boyfriend loves that movie. And he's like, they're turning Friday Night Lights into a TV show. Do you want to audition for it? And she keeps getting callbacks and it starts to feel more and more real, but she still like cannot process that it's 
a thing. Yeah, she refuses to get her hopes up. She doesn't want to get upset. She won't even tell her boyfriend, Sean, about it. And she says it's because she wanted to have a really great surprise for him if she were to get it, to be like, oh my God, I'm going to be in the TV version of your favorite movie. But she then immediately is like, also things were really distant between us. And she says they'd been weird for about a year now and they were trying to make it better. He was trying to be sweet, but they were just so far apart, it was hard to bridge the gap. And you're like, okay, a year and a two-year relationship, that's like a big amount of it. So she does her final chemistry callback for Friday Night Lights. She thinks it goes well, but she still doesn't believe in herself. And she's home with Sean and she goes downstairs one day to walk their dogs and she just has this feeling in her and she says, call it intuition. But he got a message on his phone and I would never snoop, but I just had this feeling you need to read this message. The words flashing across the screen confused me. Next time you come over, I don't want to just suck your dick. I want to fuck you. Whose phone was this? And so she goes upstairs and she's like, is this your phone? And he doesn't even deny it, man. And so she freaks out and she's like, that's it. It's over. I'm leaving. I'm moving out. She moves in with Marie for a minute. And she's like, what am I going to do? I'm so depressed. And then two days after moving out with Marie, she gets the call from her agent she got the role. She's in Friday Night Lights. And I wonder if they just picked it up directly to series because they're like, you're moving to Austin. They don't go out there to shoot the pilot and then wait and see what happens. He calls her and he says, you're moving to Austin. She moves there and they've given her a stipend to like sign a one-year lease in Austin, Texas. So this begins the next section of our tale, superstar Minka Kelly, star of Friday Night Lights. And I think now is a good time to reveal Sean this whole time, Donald Frizon. I don't think that's Freshen. it. I don't think there's an R. I think it's Faison. 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 What was his name? Turk? Yeah, Turk from Scrubs. Literally, I would say up there with friends in terms of famous sitcom actors who are making the most money in syndication. This was 2005. This would have been like prime Scrubs time. What do you mean your boyfriend was in a suite? What do you mean he was buying a house? So when he says her portion of the mortgage, when he said he was going to cover her, I was like, oh, that's nice. I wonder if she paid him back the minute she got Friday Night Lights. I go, oh, no, no, he's got a gazillion dollars. I would go as far as to guess that he was making 1,000 times the amount of money she was making. I would guess she was making $25,000 and he was making $25 million. As soon as I learned that, I understood now why her mom was like, could I have $5,000? Yes, she could have, actually. Anyway, this is the cutest thing I've ever heard. She, like, calls her friends to tell them about her new role. She, like, calls everyone who's ever helped her to thank them for helping her. And she calls her doctor's office that she worked at and was like, I promise once we finish shooting this show, I'll come back and be a scrub nurse again. She did not. <laughs> her friend was crying. They were so happy for her. Still, I did know one thing. Over the past few months, I was crystal clear about what I deserved in life. I said goodbye to my mom and all her bullshit. And now I was refusing to put up with a betrayal from Sean. That was growth. I tried to convince myself. This was a good thing, wasn't it? I mean, yes, it yes. was. It's good that you didn't stay with your cheating boyfriend. It's good that you didn't let your mom's codependency ruin your life. And it's good that you're going to be the star of a huge TV show. She and her friend do a road trip out to Austin together. And they get there. She finds an apartment. And they like go to Target. And she spends a couple hundred dollars. Ain't no thing. She's like, I've never just like gone to a store before and put things in the cart without really contemplating what the price was whether or not I like genuinely needed it. She's like, I just got plates because I liked them. She describes this thing that Austin has that's a specialty there. I've never heard of it. It's called queso. She like <laughs> describes the local delicacies and she's like, they put cheese and peppers. <laughs> Every now and then they'll put chorizo in there. And I'm just like, they didn't have queso in Albuquerque? They didn't have queso at your local Taco Bell? Like, come <laughs> on. Support for today's episode comes from Jenny Kane, the dreamiest place to shop with Mother's Day right around the corner. 
Jenny Kane items are classic, comfortable, and California-inspired clothes from cotton or cashmere knit sweaters that you're obsessed with to flowy summer dresses you will never want to take off. With elevated everyday basics and wardrobe essentials, getting dressed is easier than ever before. When it comes to investing in an outfit that'll last, we choose Jenny Kane. For a limited time, our listeners get 15% off their entire order. Go to JennyKane.com and use the code WORM to get 15% off. I have had a Jenny Kane cropped cocoon cardigan on my shopping list for, I want to say I had it on my list for the better part of a year. And when I finally got one, you had to wrestle that thing off of me. Claire and I both wore our Jenny Kane sweaters nonstop on our travels this last month. And it is just the most cozy thing to throw on. You look so put together, but you feel more comfortable than you've ever felt in your entire life. The fabric is a gift to my skin. No matter the season, their dresses are effortless and gorgeous. The sweaters are the perfect cozy winter sweater or the perfect layer to throw on on a summer night. Jenny Kane is known for their luxuriously lightweight, perfect for any season garments. The classic cotton cocoon cardigan, the luxe cotton fisherman sweater, or the best-selling Chloe crew neck. These are core pieces you can dress up or down all season long. Their cotton sweaters pair perfectly with weekends or workdays and look so put together, worn layered or solo. If you haven't tried the iconic leather knot sandals, you have not felt true comfort. Leather gives them such an elevated touch and they work with everything. They're the only shoes you'll reach for this spring and summer. Jenny Kane believes in one thing, the art of simplicity. With a focus on comfort, quality, and timeless design, Jenny Kane makes pieces that truly never go out of style. Simple, stylish, comfortable, and chic, Jenny Kane is the modern minimalist style that makes you feel as good as you look. Find your forever pieces at JennyKane.com. Our listeners get 15% off your first order when you use the code WORM at checkout. That's 15% off your first order, J-E-N-N-I-K-A-Y-N-E.com, promo code WORM. Mamas, this is your month. You deserve this. So all of the other Friday Night Lights people start arriving. They're all getting along. They're having fun. She's so freaking happy. She's not a good actress. She's like camera shy. She's warming up. She's doing her best. And right away, she meets a man I had never heard of called Taylor Kitsch. And I know what you saw. Can I say something? Even as somebody who's never seen Friday Night Lights and didn't know what Taylor Kitsch looked like and doesn't know anything, all you have to say is he was cast on like a teen drama as the heartthrob. There's like a teen drama heartthrob and then there's Tim Riggins. <laughs> I like need you to watch a couple episodes or like maybe four or five seasons of this show to like really understand what I'm talking about. He's not Chase Crawford. He's something else. He's not Chase Crawford. You're like, yeah, Chase Crawford is a handsome boy. He was Tim Riggins. <laughs> Got it. They start hooking up. We fell in lust fast and hard. And I would have told you back then that we were madly in love. Mad, yes, but love it was not. We were infatuated with each other and I had no idea how to give or receive love back then. Then, almost immediately upon starting this next whirlwind chapter of her life, her mom calls. She is not answering her mom. Her mom is calling and texting and finally is like, I really need to talk to you. And she's like, well, that's weird. Her mom has cancer. She calls Rick and goes, "Ugh, what do you think? Like, she's always blowing things out of proportion. Do you even think it's true? And Rick goes, yes. And he says, there's a ticking clock now for you to sort things out. There's a lot you two went through together and you're going to need to work out your resentment with her before she dies. Otherwise, you will regret it for the rest of your life. My world began to spin. As mad as I was at my mother, I still needed her. I still wanted her in my life. I couldn't allow what Rick and she were saying to be real. My mom wasn't going to die. That wasn't possible. So pretty quickly, Friday Night Lights, it's a dream job, but it's not the like summer camp adventure she hoped it would be when she first met the rest of the cast. Pretty quickly, things kind of divide into teams. Her and Taylor Kitsch are very on again, off again. And she takes a lot of responsibility for that. 
I mean, you would not know that from the headlines that have been like spewing out of the people who barely read this book. She is like, I was not good at giving him what he directly told me he needed. I was like very hot and cold. She's like, I got really good young at turning off my emotions. When David would hit her as a kid, he would say, and you're not allowed to cry. And if you cry, I'll hit you worse. And she just decided once as a child, I'm never gonna let anybody see me cry. So she said she would come to set and pretend nothing had happened. And meanwhile, he was very emotional and heartbroken all the time. And so people would coddle him. And she also says, and then when they were on, she didn't feel she needed any other friends. She had her boyfriend. She could be alone with him. And then, of course, when they broke up, she was completely isolated because she hadn't put work into those friendships. All she had was the boyfriend. And now the boyfriend, everyone felt bad for. Yeah, my tough guy approach only left me alone. My heart was so guarded that I couldn't even acknowledge that this was a real relationship with real feelings. I minimized what we'd shared the way I did everything else in my life. And also, of course, I'm sure she's a bit fucked up by the fact that her mom is dying and she's trying to not acknowledge it. She also, I think, was the newest person to the acting world on set. And I think she says she took a lot of things personally. She was just doing her best to stay afloat in a lot of different arenas of her life. And it ended up for a tricky social relationship. On Friday Night Lights, the way I was working was making my work messy and maybe even sometimes a little unnecessarily melodramatic. Like I said, though, I was learning on the job. So she says she was so emotional at this point between her relationship, her relationship with her mom, that she was always on the verge of tears. And when she had an emotional set day, she would turn on her sad music all day. She wouldn't speak to everybody. And she would just show up to set in that mindset of like, I'm depressed. I'm wallowing in it. I'm on the verge of a breakdown. And they would call action and the tears would flow. And she goes, now I know that you can show up and be nice to the crew and then maybe like act. (laughs) But she couldn't do it back then. And who can blame her? Yeah. So her mom comes to visit. She was sick and tired and breaking down, her life ebbing away, and I was blind to it all, determined to see her the way I needed her to be. She says her mom came to visit, and her mom was so proud of her and genuinely happy for her. And they spent this weekend where Minka just pretended she wasn't sick. Like, they would go to Target, and she'd be like, Mom, hurry up. Like, why are you going so slow? And her mom was walking around with a cane going through chemo, being like, I'm coming. And she just refused to believe that anything was really happening to her mom. And in the meantime, she's taking up Rick on his suggestion that she should go to therapy. And she goes to a bad therapist. So this is the thing. This is what is very difficult about therapy is that not all therapists are good at therapy. And I think it takes a lot of strength and determination to find a good therapist because it is a lot to like meet someone, offer them the level of vulnerability that you have to do in therapy and then be like, never mind, I have to start over. And then also I think it's hard to stand outside of yourself and go, well, I'm acknowledging that I need help. I need an external idea about this situation. But I also can decide whether or not what you're saying is right or wrong. Like, it's a hard place to be. And of course, she is not in a good spot. And so I'm reading what this therapist is saying to her. And in my head, I'm like, that doesn't sound right. And I was like, even thinking about what I was going to say on the podcast and be like, well, listen, I'm not a therapist, but I don't know that this is really what you should say to anybody. And then by the end, I'm like, oh, that was wrong. Her therapist says, Your mom didn't love you. This was a concept that had never crossed my mind, not even in our worst times did I think she didn't love me. I explained to my therapist that she had it all wrong and she disagreed. That's not a mother's love. A mother doesn't choose a man or drugs or partying or anything else before her child. That is not love. I didn't know what to say. I refused to agree. This would shake my entire reality if I accepted this perspective. That's because it's the wrong perspective. And it's like so lacking compassion or understanding of anybody's struggles. Like you can love somebody imperfectly and you can love somebody but have like bigger demons you're fighting. It's just like so wrong. So her therapist has her write a script of what she needed to say to her mom. 
She literally says, you need to tell her all the ways she hurts you before she dies. Oh, God. So she goes to see her mom and says, you were a bad mom and starts reading off the things that happened before her mom like fully just crumples. And she's like, was this a mistake? She goes, it was such a bad idea. Just remembering this conversation still brings me so much pain. Everything inside her, so much of which was already broken, shattered to bits before my eyes. She closed in on herself like a building that's imploded, collapsing deeper with my every word. She was destroyed. And so immediately she's like, no, no, it's fine. Don't worry about it. And her mom just goes, I'm sorry. I'm just so sorry for everything. She didn't defend herself or justify. She just simply apologized and cried. And she says, now I look back and I see that once she developed cancer, she stopped having this thing she did where she pretended everything was fine. And I mean, we see that when Minka said, hey, somebody said the DA is coming for you. And her mom goes, no, they're not. Why would they come for me? Everything's great. She goes, once she got the cancer, she was so humble that she could finally admit what had gone wrong and started taking responsibility for her choices. And like the relationship we had was healing. Like she was coming from this place of acceptance. And that's why we were able to get along at the end. And I didn't need to confront her with everything. She knew. At the time, mom and I were doing so well for the first time in forever. I begged the universe for more time with her. It felt so good to be realigned. She and I were getting along so beautifully. Please give me more time. So eventually her mom decides to stop chemo. The treatments are ruining her. The doctors say that with chemo, she would have a year without chemo. She has six months. And so they say, let's just go without. I mean, every time she sees her mom, she's just withering away. For the first time, I started to see her as a fellow human and woman, not just my mother. My heart broke for her because this poor baby, she'd never gotten a break. She'd taken blow after blow after blow from life, nothing but hard times. Sure, she'd made a lot of bad choices, but she also had a lot of really miserable luck come her way. I was so happy to have my mom back. She was lucid and genuine and pure, and I could see her humble heart again. So she visits her mom a few times. Her mom wants her to come for Thanksgiving, and she just doesn't go. Everyone's saying, like, come see her for Thanksgiving. You should come. And she just can't bear it. And shortly after Thanksgiving, she gets a call where they say, like, you just have to come here. It's not going good. And she spends, I guess, a few weeks trying to care for her mom before they have to transfer her to, like, an inpatient hospice because she just can't care for her anymore. Her mom is like resisting medication. She's resisting care. She's become very difficult. And so Minka's like, I actually just can't do this on my own. And her mom passes a few days later. She has this moment where she's at hospice with her and the nurses come in and say she has six hours left and she just lays on the bed and holds her. I told her how much I loved her. Her friends were all sitting on the couch in the room and the hospice nurse came in to check on her. I wrapped myself around my unconscious mother even tighter and kept whispering in her ear how thankful I was for everything she tried to do right. And then I forgave for everything else she'd done wrong. I knew she could still hear me. I rubbed her head and kept telling her how much I loved her and that she didn't have to fight anymore. It was okay to rest now. Finally, her mom passes. Rick is there and he says, let's give her a minute with her mom. In that moment, everything came pouring out of me. I just fucking wept 28 years of tears. I had never cried so hard in my life. So they have her cremated and she's just listening to every voicemail she has, reading every letter. And she's just like in a depression and she doesn't know what to do. She had been living at her friend Holly's house. And one thing about her mom is she always had best friends. She's been living with her friend Holly. And she had been telling Minka, when I die, I have a treasure chest for you filled with things that I want you to have of mine. And I've left you a journal that I've been writing in that I want you to read. And so at first, of course, she couldn't handle it. But they have a little bit of a wake. This is, I think, the last time she ever sees David. And when she sees David, she has this idea that maybe for a moment there will be like a connection and a compassion. And he'll hug her and say, like, I'm sorry for what you're going through. But instead he comes, he's quiet. He mostly thinks about himself and then leaves. And she realizes that she had followed his orders because he had taught her to. But she didn't ever really want or need his acceptance. And she realized she never really respected him. And she kind of like lets go of this idea that she was hoping to ever make him proud because she realizes she wasn't. She doesn't care if he's proud or not. And she completely severs that tie from herself emotionally. 
So the wake ends and she had hoped that somebody would tell a funny story about her mom or there'd be like some outpouring of these memories of even though she was quirky, we all loved her. There was none of that. It was silent. It was awkward. And she couldn't wait for it to be over. So finally, a few days later, she feels ready to open the chest. She has no idea what her mom has in store for her. She's like, maybe it'll be a bucket of flamingos. Her mom loved flamingos. Maybe like all these treasures and things from around the world. Tchotchkes. It's just socks. It's 40 pairs of balled up socks in a journal. And her friend's like, well, maybe she meant to, but she forgot to get around to it. And Mika's like, it's fine. It's so her. They'll keep me warm. And it gave her a real good laugh. And she's like, hey, I needed to laugh. It was very funny to be set up for this treasure chest that was filled with just her socks. She takes her time going through the journal, but she's finally able to open it. In reading it, I came to see her as a beautiful, deeply flawed, and deeply pained human who never really got a damn break. I saw how our society convinced her that her currency was to be found in looks, and those looks faded with the years she had nothing left to hold on to. She only had me. Her mom loved flamingos. She starts seeing flamingos everywhere, and a medium that she talks to is like, that's your mom, and she's like, you're being a bit goofy. And then she sees like a fuck ton of flamingos that day, and she's like, okay, maybe that's a thing. She also talks about how she felt that she wanted to be able to give back, that she had gotten a couple of really lucky breaks in her life that allowed her to escape generational poverty and what had happened in her family. And she finds a way to give back. It's called Able. You can support Minka's tries. She also tells a story about a time Harvey Weinstein comes after her and they meet for lunch. She basically says, I'll let you do whatever you want. You can fly around private jets if you want to be my girlfriend. And she's like, thank you so much. That's such a nice offer. I'm okay." He's like, well, don't tell anyone. And then she goes, you know, by not telling anyone, I was complicit. And I was like, well, Minka, you deal with your shit. We'll deal with Harvey Weinstein. You don't have to take that on your shoulders, too. I will say, like, on the list of people who were most complicit. You're pretty not on it. Your name falls low. And then Rudy resurfaces. with a sex tape that was technically child sexual assault material because she was a kid. She had actually called him when she first started getting a little bit of success under her belt. And she was like, you know, I know that you have some things. I really hope that you will not share them. She thought they had this like kind of connecting moment. He had a wife and kids at that point. And he was like, hey, they're as good as destroyed. Don't worry about it. And she like thought that that was it. And then, of course, years later, now she's very famous and he's shopping the tape around. She is able to have a lawyer cease and desist it away from him. Everyone who would have distributed it, a lawyer reaches out and is like, hey, she's underage in that video. FYI. And she still has to pay Rudy $50,000 to kill it fully, which I like cannot believe the financial burden of knowing a man. I don't understand how he wasn't thrown in jail for trying to distribute that. I don't know. Like, why did she have to pay him? It made me fucking furious. And then we got to the last chapter, which is a reckoning. She is dealing with a breakup with a man that she'd been with for many years. And they had tried IVF and she had gotten pregnant but suffered a miscarriage. And in the fallout of this miscarriage, she didn't really want to admit to him how much pain she was in. She was afraid of being a burden. And in keeping herself walled off, he was like, I can't relate to you. Like, I'm so sad about what happened. And it seems like you don't even care. And they break up. So she is fucking down in the dumps. Her friends are here to help her out. What got me through that time was the women in my life. The fact that I had such fiercely loyal friends who loved me so much made me think I'd done something right in my life. If I can give one piece of advice to young ladies reading this, it would be to always and consistently invest in your friendships with humility, love, and intention. I love that. And she goes on to say, after that breakup, I underwent a series of ketamine treatments. What did I have to lose? I could no longer deny that I was the common denominator in all my relationships, nor how my old patterns kept wreaking havoc on my love life and would continue to do so if I didn't find a way to heal the little girl inside me who felt so unworthy of love. It was clear talk therapy had only got me so far. 
So she talks about how she had been going to therapy for so long. She was in something called like awareness hell, which is she's like, I knew the problems, but I like they weren't healing. I was acutely conscious of all the patterns and unhealthy choices I made with men, but I didn't know how to unravel those wires. And I do feel like that in itself is such an impressive awareness to me. The way that she like keeps on trying new things and new therapies and new ways to like heal herself. I just think she has so much trauma that I don't know if there is a solution to it, but I love that to her there is no... There's no giving up. There's no end goal. Yeah, there's always this hope that you can keep trying to build a life and relationships for yourself. So she tries ketamine therapy and she explains why it supposedly works and she compares it to anesthesia. She's like, if you weren't under anesthesia, you wouldn't let someone like jump in and grab your kidney. You need to be put under to allow somebody to like cut you open and do what they need to do. And so by being on ketamine, she could like access the parts of her memories that her brain keeps her protected from because they're too painful. The first moment she talks about on ketamine is when she was 16 years old back in the little house she shared with Rudy and his dad and brother. For the first time ever, though, I saw myself from the outside. There she was, just a young teen alone in the world, cooking and cleaning working hard to pull her weight and not asking anything from anyone, staying with a man who didn't want her there, and yet she had nowhere else to go. The more she maneuvered to get the love and compassion she craved, the more her desires were thwarted. For an hour or more, I watched this movie of my earlier life, and I wept deep, chest-shattering sobs for that girl. I felt an empathy for her I never experienced before. She was so young. In the integration session with the doctor the following day, when we unpacked what had happened, I realized that I had been operating in my adult relationships like that scared 16-year-old. I had decided at some point, unbeknownst to my conscious mind, that men are not to be trusted and always must be kept at arm's length. I had one foot out the door ready to leave at a moment's notice. I would allow no one to get close enough to hurt me, and if they did, I'd either sabotage or run. And she just is like, so now I'm trying to teach myself that I'm an adult and I'm in charge and that that little girl doesn't have to like operate from a place of fear or of abandonment or panic. So in the epilogue, she talks about how many therapies she's tried and how she's constantly just working to get better, to heal herself. One day when she was in this horrible place and staying with her friends, one of her friends said, what if we go to a pole dancing class? And she had had a therapist say, like, you are obviously working very hard to prove you're not a stripper's daughter. Like the way you dress, the way you move through life, you're not living as Minka. You're living as a girl trying to prove she's not her mother. And in this pole dancing class, she like finds so much power in herself. And she says, as a result, I walk a little taller today. I'm proud of me and all I've survived. It's kind of ironic, but a side product of this pole dancing is that I came to love and appreciate my mom in a whole new way. This was medicine. In my classes, I was bearing my soul all but naked, fumbling through the moves, having a hard time picking up the choreography, but no longer fighting against the shadow of side of my past. I was no longer judgmental or ashamed to be a stripper's daughter. This was my life. This was me. And I gloried in all of it. I have so much more empathy and grace for her than I ever had when she was living. The ideas of forgiveness and compassion were not foreign concepts to me back then. I did my best on her dying days to tell her how much I forgave her and to give her credit. She did many things right. Sometimes I have conversations with her after pole dancing class say or driving around or simply taking a walk. I summon her spirit and I ask her the questions I never got to in life. What was that like for you raising me? What were your struggles? Tell me everything. I literally cried on the bus finishing this. I mean, this book was so deep and enthralling and readable. I think because I never thought of Minka Kelly. You truly don't know. And I think about her on the set of Friday Night Lights, having problems with her co-stars and just like everything she had survived to get to every step of the way in her life. And you just like really never know. She says at one point that she changed her mindset from not like, why are you like this to like what happened to you? Yeah. And how that helps her go through with more grace. And I think she's such a good example of someone who you'd be like, well, what happened to you? And you're like, oh, damn. 
the way that she always strives to keep working on yourself, like that's fucking exhausting. It's exhausting every year to go in and say, what's well, a new way I can work on myself? I mean, after that first therapist she met caused a whole new layer of trauma, her going to her mom on her deathbed and being like, you're mean. I mean, more than that, to have a therapist, a person in authority say, oh, your mom doesn't love you. Like, let her have the one thing she has, which is that like her mom did love her. It was just she was troubled. Maybe like get to know a girl first before you say the only person you've ever known. She hates you. (laughs) Jesus Christ. This was just a really beautiful book. And I think she like put forth so much into it. And I know she talks about the process of writing throughout and how when it became cathartic and how she went through it. She kind of mentions the interviews she did and how she accessed her past memories. I think it's really worth a listen. And it really is. She's like, this book is for the girls out there who feel unseen and like nobody's caring about them and wondering if there is a chance they can get out. You can if you're so beautiful. (laughs) If you are like strikingly gorgeous. I mean, she just has so much grace and so much understanding for a lot of people who tried to ruin her. And I think something that's so beautiful about her is that she went through so much, but she takes such pains to recognize the time she was lucky and the way that it wasn't the worst and the people who were kind and the friends who propped her up. And I think that's how you have to be to get through life. Even if you do have the worst life, you have to find the moments. Otherwise, you'll just drown in it. Yeah. So... Thank you for sharing this. Minka Kelly, we love you. And you know who else I love? Our five-star reviewers. Thank you to G.W. Puente. You're the only first president in my eyes. Thank you to Pager522. I would love to beep you and say thanks. Thank you to Night Blooming Jana. To me, you bloom 24 hours a day. Thank you to Morgan0630. I wish June 30th could be a parade dedicated to you. Thank you, Queen of the Surf. I would love to catch a wave with you. And thank you, Liana L. Yurenko. You're the best, though. I love you guys. Bye.